This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'll be talking about cheating, how the Lord speaks in a positive way about a manager who cheated his boss. We'll see what God has to say about cheating and what are the positive aspects of a person like that. Before I get into that, I'd like to mention that I have a new email address. The new address is mike at ancientpaths.faith. Again, that's mike at ancientpaths.faith. The old email address that I mentioned in previous episodes will continue to be active, but this is the one we'll use from now on, mike at ancientpaths.faith. If you have any feedback or thoughts, anything you'd like to share with me, I'd love to hear from you. And as a matter of fact, just recently, I had an email exchange with a listener on the topic of finding a new church. If things go the way I hope, that'll be the next episode after this one. However, today, like I said, I'll be talking about cheating your boss, and it's actually about stewardship. Oh, maybe a month and a half ago, I was in the USA for just a little while, and I was asked to speak at my church in Athens, Georgia. And the church was in the middle of a series about stewardship. And I thought, again, that I would talk about something that I actually covered in episode number 37 in this podcast, though with a little different perspective. In this talk that you're about to hear, I mention my series on a biblical perspective on money. And if you're interested in hearing a pretty in-depth teaching about that, you can go back and listen to the episodes that begin in episode number 84. I believe there are about five episodes on a biblical perspective on money. Also, in the talk that you're about to hear, I mentioned Scott and Donna. And just to let you know what the context is there, before I spoke, a couple from the church named Scott and Donna came up and gave a testimony sharing how the Lord had blessed them as they gave freely of their funds. So in this series of talks about stewardship at my local church, they would have people come up and give testimonies about how the Lord had blessed them as they stepped out in faith to surrender all the control of their finances to the Lord. And one last thing before we move into that talk, I once again give credit to David Pawson. He's an excellent Bible teacher, passed away a few years ago, and some of what I share comes from him. And so again, I need to give him credit If you want to hear some really, really good teaching, visit his website, davidpawson.org. All right, so now I'll hand it off to my past self as I spoke about stewardship at St. James Methodist Church. Good morning, everyone. It's really, really an honor to be here. A little while ago, I came across an old newspaper clipping of myself when I was eight years old, standing right here, getting my first Bible. And I was thinking, I've been attending this church, I don't know that my dad is here, 60 years, I guess, I've been attending this church. Of course, not every Sunday, but uh, (laughs) we go way back here. I've broken a few of these windows in the building, by the way, at various times. All right, so we're in a series, St. James is, discussing stewardship. And I am really glad to have the opportunity to talk about this. 
If you notice in the bulletin, the name of the title of the sermon is Cheat Your Boss? I put a question mark at the end of it rather than an exclamation point. We're going to look at something from Luke chapter 16 where Jesus seems to be commending a dishonest steward, a dishonest manager. And that parable that he teaches was always kind of confusing to me because the Lord presents a dishonest thief and commends him for certain ways of thinking. So we're going to look at that in a little bit. Uh, It's good for us to have a biblical perspective on money. I do a, a series of teachings called The Biblical Perspective on Money, and I've done it in a lot of different cultures. And people are really... Uh, interested to hear what does God think about money, and his ways are not our ways. The ways of the kingdom of God are completely different from the ways of this, the kingdom of this world. And so it's very important for us to know what he thinks about everything, and especially money, and especially in a consumerist society like we find ourselves in. It's been said that Christianity is a personal religion and a purse and all religion. I've heard somebody say, give me your bank accounts for the past few years and I'll tell you what kind of Christian you are. It's perhaps, uh, well, it's a very good test of our love and obedience to the Lord, how we handle our money, whether it's a little bit or a lot. Like I said, we'll look at Luke 16 and the Lord talks about money. The whole chapter is about money, but we'll be talking about this one particular section. Another title of this talk could be You can't take it with you, and if you could, it would burn. (laughs) Or you might say, how to invest your money beyond the grave. And the purpose of what I'm going to share here is discipleship, to help us grow closer to the Lord, to have his mind, to see things truly, to hear what he says. There are a lot of teachers, a lot of Bible teachers out there, Very often, they tell us what they think about what Jesus said. And sometimes, they'll tell us what Jesus should have said. And we need to know what Jesus said. So important for us to look at the revelation of God through his word. It's remarkable that God gives us these words of life, the written words that lead us to the living word. And we should follow only one teacher, and that's the Lord himself. He's a a good shepherd. He's a rabbi. He's a very wise person, and we need to follow him. So I'll be sharing some thoughts about what he said. I'm going to spend some time reading what he said. But it's so important for each of us as followers of the Lord, members of his flock, if you are a member of his flock, to listen for his voice. John chapter 10, Jesus says, the good shepherd calls his sheep by name. So he's going to speak to you personally and directly. The Bible has implications for this life and for the next. I was thinking recently about how the Lord, when Jesus came on earth, the Israelites didn't really have much of an understanding of what happens after death. They had a vague idea that there was an afterlife, and there are some few scriptures that talk about perhaps a resurrection or life after death. And then Jesus arrives, and he's teaching constantly about eternal life, what comes after this life. 
Many of the lessons that were taught in the Old Covenant to the nation of Israel are now spiritual lessons that are taught to his people because we're moving into the realm of the spiritual and of the eternal. And so God's teaching about money has implications for this life and for the life to come. And that's what the Lord said. Again, Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is just completely different from the kingdom of this world. It is, it's a completely different way of thinking about things. And we need to keep that in mind. There are lots of voices in our culture. Influencers is a phrase that's used now. And they certainly are people that influence. It's very interesting to me. Some people take pride in being an influencer, but they're it seems like their motivation mostly might be fame or money. So they're just trying to influence, but in what direction are they influencing us? They are influencing, for sure. As Scott and Donna said, it's all his. Everything that we have belongs to God. Everything that is was created by God, and we are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. There is a a little bit of a danger when thinking about the tithe. And it's been said here, I've said it, a tithe, the 10% is a good floor, but it's not the ceiling. It's a good place to start, but God wants his people to give freely and joyfully and cheerfully and selflessly. The snare that can come with the tithe is we can think that 10% belongs to God and 90% belongs to us. I'll give him his share, but I got 90%. I can do what I want to with it. But God owns it all. Everything that you have has come from God. Everything I have has come from the Lord. Our talents, your possessions, your family relationships, your bank balance. The earth is from him. Even what I've heard called our handy fusion reactor in the sky, the sun, is from him. That sun provides all that energy to make everything happen here. And that all comes from God. Everything that you own, everything that I own, will one day either belong to someone else or be thrown into the trash heap. When you buy a car, just remember that value of that car is going to zero at some point. Everything we have will either be somebody else's later on or it'll be destroyed. God has many, many bank accounts. And one of them is your bank account. And if God wants to move some of his money from the account that you're managing into some other account, well, he has every right to do that. It's all his. We are stewards. We're we're here to take care of the things that he's entrusted to us. And if he wants to move them around, that's up to him. That's totally up to him. So let's listen for what God is saying because it's all his. All right, so let's look in Luke chapter 16. You can follow along. I don't think it'll be up above me here, but I'll just sort of work through Luke chapter 16. And Luke chapter 16 is all about money from the very beginning to the end. Jesus tells a story, as I've said, of a dishonest steward. We're all talking about stewardship now, but Jesus holds up a dishonest manager as an example, a positive example. Isn't that interesting? Jesus praises a man who got out of financial difficulty by cheating his boss. And we'll read about that. Before I was a Christian, I went to church here, so that's a lesson. Being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. 
So there may be a lot of non-Christians in the room. I know that's true because I was here. But I would come to this parable and it was confusing to me because Jesus himself is talking about and seems to be praising the thinking of this dishonest steward. Well, what, what would a man like that have to teach us? Why in the world would Jesus choose a very worldly, selfish, prideful man, a story about him, to communicate eternal truths to us? It's really something that that's the way the Lord brings his truth to us. One of the things I really appreciate about the way God brings his word is it makes us engage. We have to ask those questions. Why is it that way? Why did he say that? So let's look, starting in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. I'll read and then I'll have a few thoughts interspersed among the text here. Jesus told his disciples, and here I just point out, this is to disciples, it's people that are following him. And I think that if he were here, he would say something very similar to us, because we're here because we follow Jesus. And he said to his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. The rich man called the manager to him and asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. You're fired, right? That's what the master's saying. I hear you've been cheating me. I want to look at the books. You're fired. And the manager said to his boss, yes, sir, everything is in order, and I'll be glad to have you look through all the books. No. That's not what he said. Because <laughs> he is actually a dishonest manager. It's interesting. He didn't say anything in reply. He said to himself, verse 3, the manager said to himself, oh, man, what am I going to do now? My boss has taken away my job. I'm going to get fired. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. And here I'll say, uh, it's funny. The guy was pretty honest. He had admitted that he's a weak and prideful thief. He said, verse 4, I know what I'm going to do so that when I'm fired, when I leave my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? guy replied, 800 gallons of olive oil. The manager said to him, well, you take your bill and sit down quickly and you make that 400. <laughs> just knocked his, you know, he's wanted to do a favor so that when he gets fired, he's got a place to go hang out, a place to live. Then he asked, verse 7, then he asked the second debtor, how much do you owe my master? A thousand bushels of wheat. And the, the manager said, well, you take your bill and you make it 800. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. I can imagine the master saying, oh, I see what you did there. That was pretty good. I see what you did. That was really sneaky. Well done. You're fired, but that was really good. It doesn't say he was forgiven, but I can imagine a dishonest businessman saying to one of his employees who just cheated him, like, that was really... <laughs> That was really sneaky what you did. He commended him. And Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So there's the message. There's the, uh, the lesson there, and I'll focus in a little bit on it. But Jesus was saying that this lying thief was shrewd. And the, um, 
The Greek word actually can be translated prudent, sensible, wise. We say shrewd, and it's translated here because it, it sort of has a negative context, but actually the Greek word, it's like the guy was prudent. He was like in a spot, and he did something to get out of that spot. It was sensible in the context of the world's way of thinking. But why did Jesus commend this man? Did he commend him for being sneaky, for deceiving his boss? No, no, no. That's not why he commended the guy. The Lord commends the thief for two things, and I want to highlight what those two things are. One, the man was more concerned with relationships than with things, and two, the man was more concerned with the future than his immediate present. Those are the two things that Jesus points up. I'm going to make friends so that I have a place to live. The dishonest steward could have stolen a lot and just run away with it. But he was wise enough to do something that would make him welcomed by people in the future because he knew that future was coming. He used the opportunity that he had, and Jesus said that was right thinking. Isn't that something? Like this guy had a situation, and he dealt with it. And he valued relationships and thinking to the future. And Jesus says, if the children of darkness... This is basically what he said. If the children of darkness think that way, well, then the, let the children of light think that way, but with different goals. So how is the Lord uh, suggesting that we think about money? Well, plan for the future rather than planning for the present and build relationships rather than building wealth. Plan for the eternal future. The Lord said, use that worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In the NIV, it's translated worldly wealth. Young's literal translation calls it the mammon of unrighteousness. We have to understand and remember that almost every time the world is mentioned in the scripture, it's seen as a rotten, sinful, dying place. <laughs> worldliness. It's John 3.16. Jesus loved the world. He's not saying the world is a cuddly, nice place to love. He's saying Jesus loved the world. There's another scripture. Even while we were sinners, he died for us. So this worldly wealth is unrighteous wealth. It's dirty. And the Lord says, you use that worldly wealth to build relationships, and when all that wealth is gone, then you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Eternal dwellings, not earthly houses. The dishonest manager was focused on this life. And the Lord is saying we should focus on the life to come. And I used to think when I read this, so that you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings, I had in my mind that God and the angels would welcome me into heaven, right? Like, yeah, come on up, <laughs> or whatever. I do believe that that is true, but I also believe that people will welcome us into heaven, that we'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings, and these people are going to be thanking us for using our earthly money to do kingdom work. I've thought about this quite a bit, and there's some examples that I, I came up with here. Uh, using money to support the church. Well, uh, I think Scott said he came to the Lord here in this building, so somebody had to pay the electricity, somebody's got a pay for the carpet and the cleaning and everything. I can imagine somebody, some student from Wesley or whatever, who came here for something 
And then you go to heaven and they're like, thank you so much for giving the money to take care of that building because it was through that ministry, through the life there at St. James that I came to the Lord. I can imagine that. We have the global impact celebrations. And some of the money that was given to the church for missions, and I'm involved overseas, some of that money went to a Ugandan pastor named Sam. And Sam is an evangelist. And so one time, you know, several times he's asked me, I'm going to go off and do evangelism. Can I have a little bit of money for transportation and food? And so we'll send money from the ministry account, and he'll send back photographs of people being baptized in just muddy ditches. And so that's, some of that money came from your pockets. And I can imagine us getting to heaven and these Ugandan believers saying, thank you so much for sending money so Sam could get on a bus or rent a motorcycle and came over to us because I'm in heaven now as a result of that giving. Amen? We want to give this worldly wealth so that we're storing up that treasure in heaven so we'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. My personal experience is, is a, an excellent example of this. There was an older couple in our church in Austin before my first trip to uh, Russia, which is 20, almost 25 years ago now, Armand and Joe Cosman. And at church, they both had a strong impression that I was supposed to go to Russia with a mission trip that was coming up. And after church, they spoke to each other, and they both realized that God really did want me to go to Russia. And so they called me, and they said, Mike, we feel strongly that the Lord wants you on this mission trip going to Russia, and we'll pay for you to go on that trip. And I thought, wow. A free trip to Russia? That's cool. I'll go to Russia to see something interesting. And it was through that financial gift, the spiritual discernment and the financial gift of Armand and Joe, that I set foot in Russia, and then this whole calling opened up that I was not expecting. When I see them in heaven, because they're both dead now, I'm going to thank them. Like, Armand, Joe, thank you so much. Without them using their worldly wealth... I, I wouldn't be in the thing that I'm involved in now. This is a lesson for all of us, not just to discern God's will for us, but to help discern how can, we, how can we walk with other people, help them move into what God has for them. So I'm so thankful to Armand and Joe. So we need to spend our money in such a way that people in heaven will greet us, and they'll say thank you very much for doing that because I'm here. That's what got me here. Isn't that... Something That seems to me what the Lord is saying. Use worldly wealth to build relationships so that we'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And the Lord's teaching about money goes on in Luke. Now we're in Luke 16, verse 10. And the Lord says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Wow. And this is true. Somebody who's not trustworthy with a little, you're not going to trust them with a lot more. We need to be trustworthy people. We need to be good stewards. It could be, if you really desire to be involved in ministry and be involved in kingdom work, it might be that you need to focus on being trustworthy with the little you have instead of trying to hit a home run spiritually. Just be trustworthy with what little thing God has 
given you, what little revelation he's given you, be trustworthy with it. And his way is he'll give more, that you are allowing him to build his character in you. The Lord said, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So let's remember here for a second, this is Jesus speaking. He's a carpenter from Nazareth, and he's the Messiah. And he's not offering good advice that we can accept or reject. Jesus is not saying something that's like a Hallmark card that we open and read and say, oh, that's nice, and then put it aside. The Bible says that everything that was created was created through Jesus. Isn't that something? So he's not just giving good advice for us. He is telling us the way creation functions, the way that God sees things. He's bringing a revelation of a different kingdom, a, different, a completely different way of thinking. And just as an aside, that's what repentance means. Repentance, the Greek word is metanoia. I've mentioned it here before. A new mind, a new way of thinking. And in order to enter into the kingdom of God, we've got to realize that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we have to have a new mind, a new way to see things. I do some work in Congo, it was mentioned, and there uh, the churches that I'm connected with have planted fellowships among the pygmy tribes in the jungles in eastern Congo. So I've met some pygmies. The first time I met one, somebody pointed out and said, hey, that's a pastor of the pygmy church. And I thought, why would they have a 10-year-old pastoring a church? Because <laughs> he was about as tall as my 10-year-old daughter. And he's 40, but young complex. I was like, why would you have a 10-year-old? So these pygmies, when they come to the Lord, they really are converted. Pygmies are animists, meaning they worship the spirits of the jungle, the spirits of the forest. They feel like they need to keep all of the spirits happy as much as they could figure that out because everything that they receive comes from the jungle. Their food and their housing and everything they need comes from the forest, and so they need to worship these spirits to keep them happy. And God is saying, you cannot worship God and money because people will also say of money, everything I need comes from money, from cash flow. My happiness, my housing, my food, my sense of well-being, everything comes from money. And you cannot have that attitude and worship God because everything comes from God. The money comes from God. And you can't be divided. That's what God, uh, the Lord is saying. You can't do it. And we need to know that. Because there are times when we'll look and think, ah, if I just had more money, I'd be happier. And that is not the kingdom way. You can't worship God and then worship money. You can't do it. So, what's the result? We heard about this. The Pharisees, who loved money heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. They loved money. They loved money more than they loved Jesus, which is what happened with Judas. He loved money more than he loved Jesus. And sadly, there are people involved in ministry that love money more than Jesus, and that's wicked. It's wicked, and it happens, but it's terrible. 
These Pharisees, because they loved money, they heard it and they just made fun of Jesus. Like, what did he know? And Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Wow. Isn't that something for uh, a carpenter from Nazareth to say to these religious leaders? God knows your hearts and what you value is detestable to God. So there's God's view of money. The world values what is detestable to God. And I want to take a minute to say, why is it detestable? Why does God hate it? Anything that pulls us off of the path of life, anything that pulls us away from this flow of life and this unity with God is detestable. God hates this because he loves us so much. He wants us to walk in truth, spirit, freedom, and anything that binds us or limits us or turns us away from that path of life, he hates it. We should too. It's his kindness to tell us that. That's why it's detestable, because God loves us, and he wants us to be on firm ground. Amen? Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And that active self-denial is the path of life for the sake of Jesus. And that's why this is detestable. What is highly valued among human beings is detestable in God's sight. So behind this sneering and this mocking is the big lie. What is the big lie? That the secret of happiness is money. That is a lie. That somehow money would provide what we really need. Freedom, security, power, respect. That's a lie. And I can say from experience that would be a lie. I know a lot of pastors, a lot of believers over in different countries, and they are dirt poor, like almost literally dirt poor. Their houses are made of dirt, and their floors are dirt, and they are full of the joy of the Lord. They're not only happy, they are joyful. And they've got just practically nothing. So, in closing, I just encourage us all, we need to reject the world's way of thinking about money. We have to refuse to give our worship and our attention to mammon, this unrighteous wealth. Let's reject that big lie, and here in America especially, that lie that says the more money you have, the happier you'll be. If I just had a little more money, I'd be happier. We have to reject that. We're the people of God, and that's detestable to God. He hates it. We need to surrender control of our finances. We need to focus on relationships. We need to focus on eternal dwellings. said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.